0: This is Jameson Morton, and you're listening to Legalist Rainmaker Podcast, where we interview attorneys at top law firms about how they made partner. Hello, and welcome to the Rainmaker Podcast. Today on the show, we have a very special guest, Judge Jeremy Fogel. Judge Fogel retired from the U.S. District Court of Northern California in 2018, and while on the bench, he also served as director of the Federal Judicial Center. Judge Fogel, we're so honored to have you on our show. And uh, to start, I want to point to the fact that before attending Harvard Law School, um, you were actually a student of religious studies. Uh, that kind of seems like a bit of a jump. So, you know, kind of curious. How did you first decide um, to pursue a legal career?
1: Well, it's it's a question that I get asked a lot, and it's actually a question I've thought about a lot. Uh, I was very interested in religious studies, and I think my uh, plan at the time was to. Uh, continue in that uh, as an academic. I was really interested in the topic, and I'm still interested in the topic. Uh, and it was about, to me, it was about what do people really care about most deeply? What do people think about when they think about the meaning of their lives? And uh, I was interested in how different people you know, over time and around the world have answered that question or tried to answer it, and how uh, religion provides a framework for some people. Uh, and so that was what I was really interested in doing, and it was well on my way to an academic career. And then the, um, uh, it was the late 60s. The, uh, there was a lot going on that actually is not all that dissimilar to what is going on now. There was a lot of social unrest uh, around uh, racial issues, around gender issues, around the Vietnam War. Uh, and uh, at some point in the middle of that um, Upheaval, I think I felt that being an academic might be a little bit too cloistered for me that it was uh, it it drew on some of my strengths, but it it didn 't um, really give me a chance to pay attention to some of the, some of the other ones uh, my, my caring about people wanting to make a change in the world and 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 it seemed to me that um, Law was a, a very big tent, and I mean it's something I would continue to say about law. It's a very big tent that there's a lot of ways that law can help people find themselves and, and express themselves as a career. And so, uh, it, it, having decided I wasn't going to go to graduate school and, and become a professor, I said, "Well, you know, I could become a lawyer, and I could find ways to contribute uh, to the world in the ways that I wanted to contribute to the world." And so that that was kind of where I made the Change in direction, and and you know then what I found was that uh, at first the um, I, I really didn't like law school very much. I mean, I felt that that it was sort of a uh, in, in a way a kind of conscious attempt to get you to think differently and to narrow the way you think and to uh, approach problems and people and and life situations in a particular way. Uh, but, um, the discipline was helpful and I found ways while I was in law school to continue to, uh, engage in ways that were meaningful to me. Um, uh, I worked, I actually had a, a night job, uh, working at a crisis intervention center and I, I worked with people who were really kind of at the, at their wits end and, and I just saw a lot and did a lot, uh, to, to be, uh, connected to the world that way and, um, I uh, got involved in in the mental health area, which actually then became a uh, focus of my practice when I when I graduated. I worked uh, at a mental hospital, a mental health clinic, uh, and so I found ways to stay engaged uh, with people uh, in the ways that it mattered to me. Before.
0: Your path to the legal world is really interesting, and you know, uh, given the circumstances that are going on in our society right now, it's also um, very inspiring. Um, and like you said, you know, the circumstances are very similar compared to today as they were in the 1960s. Um, but one thing you mentioned here that I think is important um, is that early in your career, your practice focused on representing people with chronic and severe mental illnesses and their interactions within, within the justice system. And uh, you even started uh, this when you were a law student. So I'm just wondering, you know, uh, how much did this work influence you, you know, both as a person and as a lawyer? It was essential. Uh, it it it, it, you you can't i can't
1: understand my own path and i don't think people who are interested in my background could could understand it if, they, if you don't look at that experience because the, the 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 people who i represented were people who in in some ways are the most uh unable to uh use the law to their benefit they 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 have a very hard time expressing themselves uh, when they do express themselves, it's often uh, delusional or incoherent or scary to people. And so they they really didn't have uh, much of a voice. And the, the system did not treat them well, and, and actually, for the most part, still doesn't. Uh, but particularly then, uh, what had happened was um, th- there were, right around the time that I started practicing, there were... Um, a series of lawsuits that shut down some of the big mental hospitals around the country. I mean the, the if you know the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or the book, there were there were um, lots of institutions that were like that where people who had uh, chronic mental illnesses were just warehouse basically so that they wouldn't go anywhere else and there were lawsuits that were brought to close those facilities down. And and some of those lawsuits were successful. And what happened was that the people were released from the institutions and just into a community which wasn't ready for them and the um, the services in the community were were insufficient. the people kind of floundered and flailed and didn't really have uh, a lot of support in uh, getting basics, just getting their benefits, getting housing those who could work, getting jobs and and so there was a tremendous need for uh, addressing the legal problems of this population, but they were singularly incapable of getting what they needed because they had such a hard time being heard and, and functioning the way a normal client would function. And so, so I had to um, uh, develop the ability, I think, to communicate with people who had a very hard time communicating and um, represent them in an ethical way. Uh, and I think the skills I learned, the, the ways I learned to listen, the ways I learned to communicate, the, the ways I learned to, uh, express empathy, things like that, uh, were all, I mean, I, I, I trace it all back to that time in my life. I mean, those were very, very challenging people to represent. And I think working with them taught me a tremendous amount how, about how to work with people. And it. Carried over because when I became a judge later, uh, what you see as a judge, particularly in the state courts, federal courts have kind of a, a, uh, uh, rarefied atmosphere sometimes. But the the state courts are very much, you know, on the ground. You have people coming in and 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 quite often quite emotional. I mean, people going through divorces or people having child custody fights or people even in small claims situations where they're really upset about something, or even in traffic court where people feel like they didn't get a ticket fairly, you're dealing with human emotion all the time. And you're dealing with people who are, who are upset and, and, and um, what they, what they need more than anything is they need somebody to hear them. They, they need to, they need to be heard and listened to and respected whether or not they win their case. And, and I think what I learned as a mental health advocate was, that you, I could not do my job without developing those skills and strengthening them, so it carried over to my
0: judicial work. Absolutely, and I definitely see the parallels you're drawing here. Um, let's talk a bit more about your first judicial appointment, which, you know, as we know, um, was in 1981, and you were appointed to the municipal court by then Governor um, Jerry Brown. It was a governor of California. Uh, that initial transition from lawyer to judge is always kind of shrouded in mystery. Um so since you're here, you know, I want to try and maybe demystify that a bit. Um so I'm just curious, how did your first uh, judicial appointment come about?
1: Yeah, so it it it, it was uh the, it, you know, I I think every judicial uh job I've had uh and I'm sure we'll go through them, but they it was always a question of of timing, in the sense that you know what what is possible at this particular moment, and uh, you have to have a certain amount of luck and and a certain amount of um, plausibility as a, as a judicial candidate. I think it's 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 really some of both. And so uh, one of the ways that uh, I was lucky was that uh, the governor was looking for non-traditional people to appoint to the bench, particularly to the trial courts. Uh, at that. This was the first Jerry Brown administration and I think in his uh, one of his goals at that point was to diversify the judiciary. It was it was almost entirely older white men and he was looking for non-traditional people uh, to appoint. Now I happened to be a white man but I was a very was a very young white man at the time and my my background was non-traditional. I had done this mental health advocacy work and and by that time um, the project that i was directing had gotten some national recognition and 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 it was something that you could look at the work i had done and say well this this guy has done some things that are worth noting and and it's non-non-traditional so i think that's the plausibility part that it was i I had some things i could point to on my resume that that made my appointment something that people wouldn't just say you know who's he and what's he doing there Uh, the, the 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 raised eyebrows that I got mostly were because of my age uh because I was I was 31 years old which at that time was really unusual I think later uh it became a little more common both in in Governor Brown's appointments and even his successor Governor Dick Majin, who was a Republican they he he appointed a lot of young people I think that this trend started um, then and and so it wasn't so unusual later but it was unusual then and then Part of it is luck um, I mean there were people in the administration who I knew you know my my law school roommate I mean there were other people I knew through other associations were were on the governor's staff, so there were people who who could speak up for me and and I think that you know you don't ever want to understate that it's a combination it's a combination of having the the um, having the goods you ha- I think you, you do need the goods to be a plausible candidate, but you also it helps to have relationships. And, uh, I was fortunate in that respect.
0: Hmm. You know, that's uh, very interesting. So, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds to me like a big part of the judicial appointment process has to do with the underlying trends of the time. Um, as well as, you know, human facts like personal relationships. So, Um, Is it all by chance then? And and by that, I mean, you know, for law students and and lawyers who want to, you know, one day become a judge. um, Is is there anything that they can do right now to advance their chances or, you know, is it all about serendipity?
1: That's right. That's really the point I'm trying to make. I think you you need the serendipity, but you need more than the serendipity. I mean, you you really can't understate the importance of both parts of it. Uh, So what I always tell people when they ask me that question is, you you need to be a, a good lawyer uh you, you need to really be good at what you do you need to take the job itself seriously that's the best advice i ever got it was one of one of my favorite professors in law school uh said you know it's not enough to be right it's not enough to feel like you you're on the right side or your cause is just you have to be good at it you have to be able to do the professional craft uh, as well as your opponent if not better and so you you can't ever sacrifice your Your commitment to doing things well just because you feel that you're you're morally right, and so I think that was great advice and I think the advice I would give anybody who wants to be a judge is be be a good lawyer and i think beyond it's not just a question of being a good lawyer technically it's a good lawyer interpersonally it's it's, it's having the kind of professional demeanor that a good lawyer has it's it's building good professional relationships it's it's having the respective adversaries, as well as people who are on your side, it's it's having the respective judges before whom you appear if you're in court, uh, or or clients or people who you do transactions with. So it's 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 a kind of professionalism that you just sort of have to practice every day, uh, and I think that's absolutely essential. And then I think the other part of it is the relationship building. Uh, it's it's being active in the community. Uh, being active in a bar association or being active in municipal affairs. Uh, in my case, um, I hadn't been very active in bar activities. I had been to some degree, but, but I'd been very active in the community. So I, in this a lot of that grew out of my mental health work and, and, and other things. And so when the time came for me to, to try to get a judicial appointment, and this not only was with the first one, but with, with the subsequent ones I got that, that, the, the relationships I'd built uh, in the community really mattered and you know people could come forward and say well I know that guy I work with him uh, he's a quality person and and so I think it's really both sort of professional really trying to be professionally excellent and also uh, you know being out and getting to know people and interact with people and building a, a network of, of friends and and relationships that 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 will matter and then you have to sort of hope at some point that that um, The serendipity part is that you never know what relationships are going to matter. And, you know, I'll talk, I'm sure, about my my federal appointment experience in a little bit, but, I mean, that was one where um, I I really think the thing that made the difference in terms of my getting that appointment was the relationships I'd built, that uh, I was not the most likely candidate for that position. I think the the senator who was making recommendations was looking for uh, – Different kind of candidate than me, and and I think what happened was that uh, she was persuaded that I had some things to offer that, that others didn't, and I think that all grew out of relationships that that uh, that I had made
0: for sure. And you know, one thing he said that really stood out to me, um, and that is to become a judge, you must first be a good lawyer. Uh, which you know, kind of then prompts the question: you know, from your experience, how do lawyers and judges differ um, in their approaches to the law?
1: They're very different jobs, and and in fact, there are people who um, become judges who were, were really good lawyers, particularly people who were really good litigators, uh, who become uh, become judges and actually don't like being judges because they don't <laughs> uh, like having to be a neutral. You know, they're so used to to representing clients and and and, and taking sides and, and winning. Uh, you know, they're, they're they're just kind of competitive personalities, and that that. Uh, being a judge does not, um, uh, tend to play to that strength. It's, it's, you're, you're not, I mean, competitive people, I mean, competitive people can be good judges, but it's not, it's not a competitive edge is not something that makes you a good judge. It sometimes can get in the way. Whereas if you're somebody who, who is a good collaborator, if you're a good facilitator of, of, agreement, if you're able to see more than one side of an issue, uh, I think those are skills or temperamental qualities that that really are very helpful if you 're a judge and so so I think they are different skills. Uh, I was exactly the opposite of what I just described i One of the things that I struggled with as a lawyer uh, is that i wasn 't partisan enough for some of my clients uh, in the you know in the men, in the mental health area, it had a little bit of a pass because my clients were just happy to have someone to talk to and and, and speak for them but but I did some other uh, general practice before I started working exclusively in mental health. And uh, the, you know, I mean, I could see where the side who I was supposing might, might might've had some merit to their case. You know, there might, might, the truth may have lain somewhere in between the positions of the parties. And my job ethically was to represent the interests of my client. And sometimes the, the, uh, the, the, partisanship of, of litigation in particular, but even, even hard negotiating, uh, it it can almost be a weakness if you're able to see the other side's position too clearly. (laughs) So, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a, I think different temperaments suit different things. For me, uh, I was much happier being a judge in, in
0: each of the judicial roles
1: I had. I was much happier being a judge than,
0: than I was when I was a lawyer. Yeah, and it's it's great that you brought up the issue of temperament in this conversation because uh, I'm also really curious about the human aspects of being a judge. Uh, you know, humans are judges too, and so things like you know temperament and uh, well-being matter a lot. So let me ask you this: um, What is the most difficult aspect of being a judge? You know, in your own experience, was it when you had to adjudicate over that case involving the death penalty? And and for listeners who don't know. Um, referring to the 2006 case where Judge Fogle halted the practice of lethal injection in California.
1: If you don't mind, what I'll do is I'll I'll, I'll get there in a minute. I, I think the the hardest thing about being a judge to me is that y- your job is not to your job is not to make everybody happy. You can't make everybody happy. You you have to decide uh, cases based on evidence and law and. You, a lot of the cases that you hear uh people just people just want you to accept their version of events you, you, they want you to tell them that they're right and that 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 they can have uh have what they think justice requires and you're gonna disappoint people almost all the time uh the the to me the sort of the paradigmatic example of that is is family court, you know, because you have people who are say going through a divorce, and they are going through a divorce at in, in, in a time in their life when, when it's very painful, and they really don't like each other, and they have they have grievances uh, that they want to talk about, and they want the outcome of the case to be one. I think whether they say it or whether they're just feeling it, they want the outcome of the case to be one that suggest that their grievances are legitimate and that the other party's at fault. And and of course, you know, we don't have fault divorce uh, in California or in most of the states actually. They have they have no fault divorce, which means that it doesn't matter whose fault it is. It's just it's just a question of whether the parties are able to live together or not. And and so you end up not being able to really give people that validation. I think it helps if you're a good listener, it helps if you can feel their pain you know if you can if you can really remember that they're feeling a lot of pain and and somehow reflect that back to them but but it it you're not going to be able to you know hang their ex-spouse by their thumbs somewhere you know it's just that's not an option that you have as a judge the law doesn't give you the opportunity to do that so so there's a lot of ways that you just end up disappointing people and you have uh uh to deal with a lot of emotion and a lot of, a lot of intensity. Uh, and, and I think that makes the job difficult, uh, victims in criminal cases. I mean, in one, one of the t- times I remember vividly was one where it was a sort of a mini Madoff scheme where someone had, uh, uh stolen people's life savings for, a, for a, uh, a stock scheme that turned out to be fraudulent. And, you know, the, the, the defendants got significant prison terms. They got prison terms of, you know, eight or 10 years. But from the standpoint of the people whose lives were ruined, I mean, that was, that was a drop in the ocean, you know, and there was really was no way to, to make those people whole or to make it okay. What happened to them? And, and there was, there was nothing I had the power to do to the defendants that would have changed that. And so you have these, these moments where you just realize that you know, a very limited, uh, function, which is you, you listen to evidence, you determine facts, or a jury determines facts, and then you you apply the law to the facts that have been determined, and and sometimes those results make people happy, and sometimes they don't. So there's there's that kind of constant uh, pressure, I think, that you feel as a judge, and and learning how to listen, and 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 empathize, and, and be be caring, and at the same time do your job, and in, in appropriate instances be Firm when you need to be. When somebody has hurt another person and they need to be dealt with for doing that, you have to you have to have that whole arsenal of of um, of emotions. So to skip ahead to the case you mentioned, uh, that was one where uh, the plaintiff in the case, the person who brought the claim, was challenging the execution protocol in California and said that it was not safe, that that it didn't work properly, and that. As a result of it not working properly, people who were being executed were suffering unconstitutional levels of of pain. And actually, the the evidence uh, of that was overwhelming. Uh, The undisputed evidence of that was overwhelming. Uh, And the the law at the time, it's actually changed somewhat since I had that case. Uh, But at the time, the law was pretty clear that if you had uh, the degree of certainty that... uh, existed in that case that somebody would suffer um, an extreme level of pain, uh, that 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 was not a constitutional way to execute somebody. Uh, And so that was what I had to find. And I I really felt that I was compelled by the evidence to do that. And I went um, out of my way to say I'm not passing judgment on the death penalty. I'm not saying that this plaintiff is a good guy, which, in fact, he is not. Uh, He committed a very heinous murder. Uh, and you know, that, that all I'm saying is that this execution protocol based on the evidence before me in this case does not, uh, pass muster in existence with the law in accordance with the law that exists at this time. And, um, you know, what happened was that a lot of people interpreted the decision as my ruling in favor of this horrible murderer or ruling against the death penalty. And no matter how much I, uh, made clear that I was doing neither of those things. It, it really didn't matter, and that kind of goes back to the point I was making a minute ago, which is that you, you you're dealing with um, a lot of emotions, a lot of people's sense of, of what's fair and right that doesn't have anything to do with what's legal. And and one of the hardest things about being a judge is you have to walk that line. You have to you have to stick to your 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 assigned role, your constitutional role, which is to adjudicate cases in accordance with the law. And sometimes when you do that, uh, you get in a lot of trouble uh, with folks who don't understand your reasoning or who who read it differently. So, uh, you know, I've had a few of those. It's not like that's something that happens every day, but I think most judges, if they're on the bench long enough, are going to have a case or two like that. And, And what happens then is that you know, back then, this was like 19, uh, 19 uh, excuse me, 2006, uh, there was email then, but there was not social media then. So I got uh, I got quite a bit of email. Uh, was in the hundreds, though. It wasn't in the thousands or tens of thousands, you know, people who are complaining about, about the ruling. But, you know, people today, judges today who have controversial cases um, that touch on hot-button issues like that are getting millions of uh, comments on on Twitter and Facebook and some of the other platforms and and that I think is a is a really significant uh, change in our culture.
0: Yeah, it's uh, actually really eye opening to learn about the kinds of emotional burden you know the predicaments that judges have to face every day. Um, and that stress is making the job seem like gloom and doom. But, you know, there's got to be some positives in there, too. So um, if there is any, what, you know, what makes being a judge gratifying?
1: This is a this is a great question. Um, so I, I always have joked with people that the only things that judges do that are guaranteed to be fun uh, are weddings and, and adoptions. You know, that that when you think about what judges are doing most of the time, you're, you're deciding Disputes, people coming to you because they have disputes, or or because someone's charged with a crime, or or there's a, a emergency situation involving a child or a, or a disabled person or something like that. So, the, the the nature of the job is you're dealing with with problems by definition, and and really it's only when you get to perform a wedding or or do a do an adoption that it, everybody's happy. But but that's not what makes the job satisfying. I mean, what makes the job satisfying is that you can find ways to uh, uh, resolve problems that are better than the alternative, that are better than people getting into a fight or somebody committing violence against another person. And you can do it in a way that that is actually thoughtful. And even if people aren't 100% satisfied with the outcome, they like the way they were treated, uh, they, they they feel that they got their day in court, they got respected for who they are as people. And I think that's one of the things I've always found so gratifying, and that's why I say there's kind of a red line that goes right back to my mental health work, and even back further than that to my religious studies days, I think what people care about when they come to court, even though at some level they do care about winning their case, but I think what what they care about even more in some ways is they, they care about being treated fairly. That they, they care about being listened to well. They care about being heard. They, care about being understood and respected. And if they get that, most of the time, even if the outcome isn't everything they wanted, uh, that's a lot, especially in a, in a moment where they're they're feeling vulnerable. Uh, and I remember getting letters, and I'm certainly not the only judge that this has happened to, I remember getting letters from people who I'd sent to prison uh, saying, you know, thank you for treating me like a human being when you sentenced me, you know, that... That I think there's, a, there's tremendous satisfaction, always has been a lot of satisfaction for me in, in figuring out how to uh, deliver what's kind of known in the trade as procedural justice. You know, that, that people feel that they've really gotten a fair shake. And, um, you know, if you can do that when, when people are having uh, significant disputes or even you know, their liberty may be at stake, I, I think that's really adding some value. And, and figuring out how to do that um, <clears throat> has been very satisfying for me and how to how to get better at that and 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 really cultivate the skills. And then I think another thing that made my judicial career so satisfying is at some point I started teaching uh, other judges about these very things. I um, <clears throat> got involved uh, back in the mid-80s, actually, in starting to teach judges about family law because I had worked in that area early in my career. And and a lot of the teaching I did in the family law area was about how do you deal with these incredibly emotional cases and, and kind of keep your head about you and 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 deliver procedural justice to people. And then it evolved into teaching in other areas, and then <clears throat> it eventually led to the job that I had at the end of my judicial career, which was being the director of the Federal Judicial Center, which oversees education for the entire federal judiciary. And and it was a um Tremendous opportunity, and that that, that opportunity to to teach what I had learned about the art of judging uh, to other judges has been, you know, probably if I had to pick one thing that's been the most satisfying, it would be that.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, you know, I'm particularly struck by the concept of procedural justice. Uh, You know, just the fact that it provides so much dignity and hope to those interacting with the courts is tremendous. Uh, but before we get too deep in the conversation, I want to bring up another concept, which I think is also you know very prominent in your career, um, which is the idea of mindfulness. Oh yes, yeah, and, and as I remember, you started practicing meditation in nineteen ninety seven. That's right, uh, and then uh, you in twenty sixteen actually published this article called uh, "Mindfulness and Judging," and and that was as the director of the Federal Judicial Center. Um, so let's talk about it. You know, how has the idea of mindfulness impacted um, or maybe guided your legal career?
1: It's been very important, and in fact. <clears throat> The, it, it's, it became more and more important over time. Um, I actually started practicing mindfulness back in the mid-'90s because I was feeling very stressed out. Uh, you know, I was doing uh, some really hard work uh, back on the state court. Uh, I was managing the civil calendar and, and, and just had uh, a ton of work going on, and, uh, and it seemed like a good way to manage stress. Um And then I was nominated for the district court at a time when uh, there was a lot of political uh, tension around that. I mean, one party controlled the Senate, the other controlled the presidency. So there were uh, every nomination was kind of hard fought and and, uh, there was no guarantee if you were nominated that you would get confirmed. And and so right around that time, um, uh, meditating actually was a way of just kind of getting through the day and um what happened was that the, the longer I did it, the more I started to see uh all of the ways that it not only gets you through the day, but really uh, improves your understanding of the world and 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 your, your sense of equanimity and 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 everything else. And so by by the time I wrote the article in in um in 2016, I'd been meditating for almost 20 years. And and I could really say, well, you know. Mindfulness not only is is a, is a way to take care of your own wellness, which it certainly is, but it, it also has relevance to judging, to judicial decision-making. And in, in the article, um, I talked about some areas where that's the case. And, um, you know, one of them being that you sometimes in, in judging will do very routine tasks. Uh, one, one that judges complain about all the time is when, when they're doing criminal um, calendars, they have to take a lot of guilty pleas. And the, the script you have to go through for a guilty plea is the same in case after case after case. And, and that can get boring. And what happens is if you get bored and it becomes mechanical, then then you no longer are present for the defendant whose guilty plea you're taking. And so the the experience that people have is it's kind of like going to the post office where you have uh, postal clerks who've been working there too long. You, know, you just don't get the, the sense of any kind of engagement or or procedural justice or anything like that. And and one of the things that, that mindfulness does is it allows you to be present in the moment and say, okay, this this is where I am right now and this is the only guilty plea I've ever taken. I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's a beginner's mind concept that's so prevalent in mindfulness. And and, and so it really helps with things like that. Uh, it it helps with uh, being able to see people better. And, and this is, of course, very relevant now what we're dealing with in in our current society, with with uh, unconscious bias and unconscious assumptions, that that one of the things that mindfulness does is it helps you slow slow down your thinking. And so you, when you meet somebody or you encounter somebody or you're you're handling a court proceeding, you don't just react to what somebody looks like or where they come from or what kind of last name they have or something like that. But you actually are kind of having a present time interaction with another human being and. That's a unique person and a unique interaction, and it tends to to mitigate the the uh, unconscious effects of, of of things like implicit bias. So it's a it's a, it's a tool that can be used there, and uh, it um, it's it's also very helpful in, in helping you manage emotion. Because I've been talking a lot in this interview about how uh, much uh, judges are exposed to strong emotion, and judges feel strong emotions, and they don't necessarily have the tools for uh, regulating their emotion uh, and so it, it's not at all uncommon for judges to suffer from high blood pressure or uh, drink too much or or do other kinds of uh, have other kinds of habits that are not healthy as as ways of of dealing with the stress that they accumulate in the course of a of, of a day or, in, or or a week and and mindfulness is a way of relieving that and, and dealing with the emotions and regulating the emotions that you feel. So what I, what I came to conclude was that it has very direct practical applications to judging that don't have anything to do with spirituality. They don't have anything to do with uh, wellness as we tend to think about wellness, but they, they, they're they a great professional uh, asset. And, and what I discovered as I got into it more is that there's other professions where that that same realization has uh, sunk in and, and maybe, uh, sooner and to a greater degree, uh, medicine and, uh, the military has become a, a great, uh, practitioner of, of mindfulness in, in training of certain special forces. And, and, uh, uh, you know, some of the corporations, even some of the big corporations are using it as part of their corporate training. So, so it has, it has practical applications and it's just, it's just a fascinating subject. And then of course there is a spiritual element for those who want there to be. And, you know, it, it it tied into my, uh, my my love of this area of, of um, spirituality and religion because it, it it certainly opens that up if that's where you care to take it.
0: Yeah, once again, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating how these different elements we've touched on throughout this interview kind of all just weave and go together. Um, you know, your interest in religious studies, your work as a mental health advocate, serving procedural justice on the bench, practicing empathy and mindfulness – you know they all kind of just fall into place and create this coherent and organic narrative on your career. Thank uh, you for
1: noticing that and and calling that out and it is one of the reasons I'm 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 a happy person, you know? I mean I have I have, uh, I have <laughs> my bad days and I have my bad moods but but I think the this the sense of of equanimity that I have felt uh, and has grown over the years and I do give a lot of credit there to to having practiced mindfulness for as long as I have but you know, I also got very lucky with the woman I married and the children that I have and the grandchildren that I have. And, you know, it's, like it's, it's really having the, 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 the gratitude uh, t- that I've had a really good and interesting life and, and, and remembering that every day. And I think that's something that,
0: that makes a big difference to me, too. Absolutely. And so, um, Judge Vogel, before we wrap up this interview, I just want to ask you, you know, about the rise of litigation funding, because we are a litigation finance firm. Um, and just curious, you know, what do you think of Legalist? Well, you know, I'm just getting to know Legalist. I, I've uh, had a number of
1: conversations with your CEO. They've been a lot of fun. And uh, I think the, the idea that you would um, use litigation financing in, in a socially conscious way. Uh, that is very intriguing, and it's one of the reasons why uh, I've put the time into developing this relationship. I think that that it's it's a very um, thoughtful use of litigation financing. It's kind of empowering people who might not have the ability to uh, participate in litigation or really to compete effectively in litigation. Otherwise, uh, my experience with litigation financing before I heard about legalists was that uh i i saw it a lot in the intellectual property field which is uh, where a lot of my judging when i was on the federal court uh was centered because i sat in san jose and i i, I was hearing cases from silicon valley all the time and so there certainly are uh cases of patent litigation where uh, especially when you have sort of you know if non-practicing entities suing practicing entities where, where people invest in the lawsuit and so forth uh and i saw it some in in um uh, mass tort cases uh multi district litigation where where uh, litigation financing was one of the things that uh, people would use to get leverage in in trying to uh, get those cases litigated and resolved so that has been my experience with it and it 's sort of been more on the the big time level um, and and pretty much all about money and I think the thing that has impressed me so far about legalists is just the that that there is a, a social conscious social conscience aspect to it that, as far as I know, is unique and and impresses me and and makes me want to know more.
0: All right. Thanks for listening. Legalist is a tech-driven litigation finance firm that helps lawyers get paid. Rate our podcast and give us a review wherever you find your podcasts. See you next time.